Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Rebecca, and I am joined here again today by Nicole and Journey. This week, we are doing things a little differently. Uh, we're not going to be talking about a specific science, but instead we'll be each presenting a case of cannibalism. I'm going to start off this episode with the case of Armin Mivis, and then Journey will be telling us about the Amazonian Wari tribe, and finally, Nicole will teach us all about Albert Fish. Also, we would like to advise you that there's a listener's discretion, as there are detailed descriptions of cannibalism, abuse, pedophilia, sexual assault, and molestation. So, with the listener's discretion out of the way, let's get into the cases. Um, so... I'm going to start us off. The case of Armin Mivis was also known as the Rottenberg Cannibal, and he's actually one of the most famous cases in cannibal history just because of the sheer bizarreness of the whole thing. Um, so the amount of people that Mavis killed and ate wasn't actually what made his case so famous, as he only actually had one victim. It was actually the circumstances under which he and his victim uh, had met and how the crime took place that made it so infamous. So to begin, Mavis was born in Germany on the 1st of December in 1961, and he was 41 years old at the time of his crimes. No one that knew him really suspected that he was the kind of person that could do something uh, like eat a person. He was a computer repair technician, and by all accounts, his neighbor, uh, sorry, by all accounts of his neighbors, he was a pretty friendly and helpful guy. He would often invite them for dinner parties, he would offer to help them with their car troubles when they their cars broke down, and he was often even seen mowing their lawn for them. Um, but what they didn't know about him is that there was a darker side to him that no one knew, um, that he also craved human flesh. Did this, did this, um, have any important part in the dinner parties he hosted for his neighbors? Thankfully, no. Okay. No, okay. they, he fed them <laughs> normal animal meat. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. Yeah, so... Uh, Mavis and the 43-year-old victim, whose name was Bernd Jürgen Armando Brandes, uh, both spent time in a cannibal fetish chat room on what I can only assume is the dark web, because I don't know where you would find that on the normal web. Um, there are two different but pretty similar versions as to how they initially met online, but either way, both took place in this chat room. Um, so I'm going to share what both sources had said, just because it's they're pretty even both ways. So the first claim is that Mavis had posted an online ad to this forum stating that he was, quote, seeking young, well-built men aged 18 to 30 to slaughter, unquote. What? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Brandes and actually many others also apparently responded to this ad, um, however, many others that responded ended up backing out, and thankfully, um, Mavis never pushed them to do anything further when they rescinded consent. But Brandes had given consent and said, nope, I want to go through with this, let's meet up. Um, so that's the first uh, version of the story. The second is that it was actually Brandes who had posted an online ad to this forum, but he titled his ad, quote, Dinner or your dinner. And in the ad, he offered the chance to, quote, eat me alive, unquote. And apparently Mavis had responded to this ad to meet up and take him up on this offer. Ew. Yeah. Yeah, not great. Um, I'm a huge fan of the title, though. <laughs> dinner. Dinner. Or your dinner. <laughs> so, uh... Despite these two different beginnings to the story, the timeline of what happened after their initial meeting is is known. Um, so after this initial online encounter, it's reported that Brandes sold his car, wrote a will, and then took a personal day off of work in which he explained to his boss that he was taking this personal day to sort out a personal matter. Um, and then after this, on the 9th of March in 2009, Brandes went to Mavis's house where they met for the first time, and they then made the mutual agreement to have sex, cut off Brandes's penis, and eat it together, and then Mavis would, with Brandes' consent, murder him to continue eating his flesh. 
Um, in addition, they agreed that they were going to film the entire thing. So beginning with the sexual encounter um, and ending with Mavis stabbing and murdering him to cook him. Ew! Oh my god, <laughs> oh my god I'm so... I don't like that. <laughs> Ew, no thank you. Yeah, they ate so, it together? Yeah. They ate it together. <laughs> yeah. It's, I know I shouldn't be laughing, but I'm it's, just, la- it's but crazy I'm he consented too. to this. Uh, it's, I don't it's know that I could... It's definitely quite the bonding experience. Like, it's, it's something. It's something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I could eat someone else, much less eat myself with someone else. I know. Especially I can't imagine. own penis. <laughs> <laughs> so... After their uh, sexual encounter, uh, it's reported that Brandes had drank half a bottle of schnapps and also took a handful of painkillers because he wanted to relieve some of the pain that he knew he was about to feel. Um, And he insisted that Mavis would amputate his penis by biting it off. Um, Biting it off didn't actually work. I guess his teeth weren't sharp enough. Uh, So they agreed that they would use a knife instead. However, the first knife that they tried to use ended up being too dull, so he had to go get a second, sharper knife to finish off the job. Um, Apparently, Brandes was screaming in pain, and there was a lot of blood. Uh, Mavis described it as a fountain coming out of the wound. Um, But he said after about 20 to 30 seconds of this excruciating screaming in pain, uh, they had successfully removed his penis. I'm still, like, squirming in my skin. I don't like it. (laughs) I'm sure you'll be squirming a little more at the next detail. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, So after this part was completed, it's reported that Brandes actually attempted to eat part of his own penis while it was raw. He said he wanted to eat it rare, but that it was too chewy. So he sent Mavis to the kitchen to try and fry it up with some salt, pepper, and garlic powder. But unfortunately for them, uh, Mavis ended up burning it, and he said that it was it ended up being inedible to both of them. So they didn't end up getting to eat his penis. Uh, wait, did they get through one, and they were trying to eat a second? No, um, Brandis tried to take a bite out of his own raw penis and he decided it was too hard to eat so mavis went to the kitchen to try to cook it for them uh but just because of i guess like the anatomy of it and how it's pretty much just blood vessels it burnt really easily and just it it just wasn't edible anymore so that kind of ruined brandes's fantasy i don't know why that was a fantasy in the first place but (sighs) i actually gagged when you said that it was too hard to eat (laughs) yeah so after this ordeal and they couldn't eat it unfortunately for them but i don't think it's unfortunate um as per the agreement they continued to videotape and mavis drew a bath for brandes where they placed him in the warm bath for him to bleed out and he went into another room to read his star trek book and then went in every 15 minutes or so to check on him Um, I suppose at some point, both of them were tired of waiting, probably Brandes in a lot of pain and Mavis just wanting to eat him. So a few hours later in the early morning, Mavis ended up stabbing him in the neck uh, in the bathtub to kill him and then reported that he proceeded to cut his body into little pieces, which he said he had learned how to do on the internet, I guess in his cannibal forums. Oh, yeah, so then when he was finished, um, he put uh, Brandes's body into the freezer, and then he also buried some of him in the garden. They didn't specify in any of the reports exactly which pieces were kept and which were buried. Some reports say that um, Mavis kept his skull in the fridge, but other reports state that his skull was the piece that was buried, so I didn't want to give any false information there but yeah so in the months that followed uh mavis said that just like any other piece of meat he would defrost the pieces and then he would prepare them as a gourmet meal for himself and in an interview he actually said that his first meal that he made was a special occasion i guess because it's the first piece of human meat he had eaten and that he ate quote a piece of rump steak a piece from his back 
unquote, because it was a special occasion. And he said that he ate it on his nice dinnerware. He laid out candles so he had a nice atmosphere. And he ate it with a side of potatoes and sprouts and drank some wine. This sounds like Hannibal, like the TV show. People actually kind of gave him the nickname the real-life Hannibal Lecter because of how, like, precise and gourmet his cooking and stuff was. Oh my gosh. Uh, So he reported... Uh, And also, the places he's reporting this, he was interviewed in prison by a documentary crew at some point, so that's where some of these quotes are coming from. Um, But he told them that the taste of human meat was, quote, like pork, but stronger and more substantial, unquote. I'm not sure what he meant by more substantial, but I don't think I ever want to know, so I'll leave it at that. Um, He ended up getting caught because... After this initial killing, and it was his only one, he continued to post ads online and search for more victims. And he ended up being caught because a student from Austria saw one of these ads. Side note, I don't know why this Austrian student was on the cannibal forums. I think that in itself might want to be looked at. Um, (laughs) But he saw one of the ads and was really suspicious of it. So he actually tipped the police off. Uh, and then on the 11th of December in 2002, the police raided Mavis's home and found 15 pounds of Brandis's flesh in his freezer that were hidden underneath some pizza boxes. Uh, in addition, they found the entire video of the crime that they had agreed to film at their initial meeting. So um, very soon after, police were pulling bags of flesh out of his freezer. He confessed. He had said he'd already eaten 45 pounds and that much of that he had fried with some garlic powder. Um, And then at his trial, he testified that his victim, quote, wanted to be eaten alive, unquote. Otherwise, he never would have killed him. And that the victim was actually the one who encouraged him to continue trying to kill and eat people after his death. uh, Because apparently Branda said he didn't want his body to be alone in his freezer. It's still murder. It's still murder. Even if they want you to do it. It's murder. (laughs) Don't eat people. Oops. Yeah, I agree. Don't eat people. But even though Brandis was trying to tell uh, Mavis he wanted him to continue killing, uh, Mavis had told police he was hesitant to do so and didn't really feel the need to because he felt that his ultimate urge of killing and eating someone had been satisfied. Um, In addition, he had testified to the courts that when he was growing up, he was a generally pretty well-behaved young boy, um, but he was always obsessed with the story of Hansel and Gretel, and most specifically, his favorite part of the story that he obsessed over was the part where uh, the witch would try to fatten up Hansel to cook and eat him. So this, I believe, is where his uh, cannibalistic urges kind of stemmed from, was this German fairy tale. During his trial, um, they found that the courts were actually having a bit of trouble trying his case um, because the defense's argument was that this wasn't true murder because of Brandis's continued consent throughout the whole ordeal. Um, in addition, technically, cannibalism in itself isn't an illegal crime in Germany. And actually, there's a lot of countries that cannibalism isn't in itself illegal. It's just often considered um, not destroying a human body, but what's the word when they mutilate? Like tampering with a human body? Yeah. uh, It was was really that just he had murdered someone and he he had tampered with their body and that it was just not cool, not nice. But cannibalism in itself is not illegal. So Um, you can eat someone as long as you're not the person who killed them first. I think I think it depends cuz I feel like if you're still the one to cut up the body then you're still you're still damaging the corpse and that in itself is illegal. You have to find a real good loophole to eat someone legally. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um because of all of the uh troubles with this case in court with the consent of the victim and how cannibalism isn't technically a crime Uh, mavis was convicted to manslaughter on january 4th in 2002 and he ended up getting sentenced to eight and a half years in prison um however the prosecution ended up appealing his case because they didn't agree with the sentence they believe he should have been convicted of murder 
not manslaughter. So after re-reviewing his case, the appeal was granted because the court had ended up deciding that he still, quote, had fantasies about devouring the flesh of young people, unquote, and still had a risk of reoffending. So on the 6th of May in 2006, he was convicted of murder, and that is when he was sentenced to a life in prison, where he still is today. I don't like that it happened in the 2000s. Yeah, yeah. we were alive. This was this was I less was than 20 seven. years ago. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so that, uh... That is my case. It was a little bit of a shorter one, um, but I just thought it was a really interesting thing to put out there that you got to be careful on the internet. Um, I know the victim still volunteered himself, but still the fact that these forums exist is very frightening. Yeah. Definitely a way to uh, start us off with the cannibals too. I was not expecting that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. So with that first case, um, now told journey would you like to tell us about your case of the amazonian wari tribe yes i would i am very excited so like rebecca said i am going to talk about a tribe called the wari which can also be pronounced as vari however for this episode i'll be saying wari because it's simpler and there is a wari culture in india i believe and they are not the same This tribe is in Brazil. So I first learned about this tribe in my anthropology religion course last fall, and I ended up writing a paper about them and their cannibalistic traditions. So the information I have is a little bit more anthropologically based than what our cases usually are. Um, But I find this tribe so interesting. And so my inner anthropologist just kind of comes out when I research it (laughs) because I love learning about their traditions. It's so cool. And so, The Wari tribe is native to the Amazon in Brazil, and until the 1950s, they lived undiscovered by anyone, so no one knew they existed until the 1950s, and then as soon as they were discovered, anthropologists quickly learned that they had a very unique way of disposing of their deceased. And so, the Wari participate in both endo- and exo-cannibalism. Exo-cannibalism is known as warfare cannibalism. And it's the act of eating your enemies and social outsiders. And then endocannibalism is also known as funerary cannibalism. And it's the act of eating members of one's tribe after they die. So they died of natural causes before they ate them? Yes. Oh. I. Yeah, it's kind of icky. And so I go into like the separate um, types of cannibalism a little bit later on. Um... But because they have such unique ways of disposing of their deceased, the anthropologists like flocked to their area to study them in the 1950s and 60s. And so with the anthropologists came many Christian missionaries. And so they tried to colonize the Wari. And by doing so, they introduced a bunch of like diseases and illnesses that the Wari had never come into contact with. And so once they had them all infected and sick, they withheld modern medicine from them until they stopped practicing cannibalism, and they ended up killing over 60% of the Wari population by doing that. And the Wari did end up stop practicing cannibalism. And so now, if any anthropologist wanted to study their cannibalistic customs, they would have to talk to the elders of the tribe, but a lot of the papers that I read were written in the late 1990s and early 2000s, So a lot of the individuals that they talk to are now deceased. And so everything I have is kind of like word of mouth, pretty much. Um, So generally, cannibalism is thought of as an act of aggression, but that does not apply to the Wari except when they're eating their enemies. Um, The Wari use cannibalism as a way to lessen the effects of grief on an individual and as a way to pay respects to the dead. So. When an individual dies, they're put in a house of their eldest kinsmen, and then mourners from all around come to pay their respects, and so the body is often not prepared for disposal before everyone that knew the individual had a chance to attend the funeral, visit the body, and participate in the wailing. 
and the amount of time this took often varied due to the age and social standing of the individual. So if a baby passed away, there wouldn't be near as many people who knew it to come and visit than if an older individual passed away. And so the funeral then consists of the body laying in the center of the room with the people related to the individual closest to the body and then other mourners kind of crowding around. And then for every funeral, the people mourning would participate in death wails that last until the end of the funeral. Um, so that's kind of what I meant by the wailing. Um, and so these death wails are composed of memories of the deceased, wordless crying, singing kinship terms and songs about the deceased's life's history, deeds, and kindness to kind of like pay their respects. And it's also very important to the worry that the bodies never lie alone and that someone is always with it. And so that's why the funeral consists of the grieving family members around the body. And kind of along the same line is another practice where mourners will lay on top of each other and then put the dead body on top of the pile. And often the people underneath would like pass out. And so this is important to them because unconsciousness is like another form of death. And so it allows family members to essentially join the deceased in death. And so in my paper, I compared it to always wanting to sleep after a loved one dies in modern society to kind of like make yourself feel better. And then when the worries practice funeral cannibalism, they would also have to construct an elaborate roasting rack. And so one beam from every person's house in the village was used to make the rack. And then the beams were painted with red annatto and decorated with feathers. And this red annatto is just like an orange-red dye that's made from a special tree. And so they take a roof beam from every house. It makes each house's roof sag, which represents the impact of the death in the community, which I think is very neat. And then after the rack has been made, the body is dismembered and prepared for roasting. And so this act of dismemberment is obviously very scarring for the family but it was actually more scarring than the act of eating the individual. Uh, because up until now, the funeral consisted of creating that deep attachment to the deceased's body. So when they're destroying the body, it's obviously quite upsetting. And then once the body parts that are acceptable for, acceptable for consumption are roasted, they're roasted throughout the night, and then the feast begins in the morning. And this part's very interesting, because when it's time to consume the body immediate family members do not participate because that is a, considered a form of self-cannibalism and it's thought to be fatal, actually. Interesting. Yeah. And in one of my sources, it was mentioned that, quote, restrictions to cannibalism coincide with incest prohibitions, end quote, which I think is kind of a gross parallel, but also very interesting. Oh. So they're saying, like, you can't eat your brother because... That's the same as incest. I'm like, okay. That's very strange, but also kind of makes sense. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, so as a result, the in-laws are in charge of consuming the deceased. And if the deceased was unmarried, then their siblings, spouses, and spouses' families would have the honor of eating the deceased. So, and additionally, the men were required to eat their relatives and women would only need to participate at their discretion. So they didn't have to eat their in-laws. Um, and I feel like this doesn't really need to be said, but the family members who were required to eat the deceased did not enjoy the task, especially since the body sits for quite a few days before being cooked so it's no longer appetizing when it's time to be eaten. And if you remember, the older the person, the longer their funeral custom, and they are not on ice, so their body is very rotten by the time they're ready to be eaten. And as a result, the eaters alternate between puking in the woods and eating, making sure to hide that they're puking from the grieving family. What? Yeah. Oh. My suggestion is just don't eat them. I think the funeral was respectful enough. I think Eating them is a little disrespectful, but I guess different cultures, different practices. If it makes them sick, too, like, wouldn't it make sense to do something during the funeral process to slow decomp down? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, we wouldn't eat 
We wouldn't eat rotten animal meat, so why would you eat rotten human meat? Yeah, I have no idea why. But I guess this was a long time ago, and they probably didn't have, like, a fridge to put the body in. Yeah, that's true. I was just thinking they're in the Amazon. Yeah. And had no idea what civilization was, so... Yeah. I'm sure they didn't have an ice maker. No, and they also don't have to eat the whole body. Okay. They kind of have, like, a determined, like, amount of flesh that needs to be eaten. And so after they've consumed that flesh, then the body's actually cremated. And the state of decomp at the time of consumption determines the amount that must be consumed. So they're not like, okay, this body is so rotten, you have to eat the whole thing. They're like, okay, this is kind of gross, you can pick and choose, and you don't have to eat the whole thing, which is kind of nice. Um, and then the last ritual that they perform in funerary cannibalism is to basically eradicate everything that belonged to the deceased. So they burn their clothes, they burn their house, they burn any food that that individual helped collect and the land on which they died to kind of like cleanse it of that individual. And they also never speak the deceased individual's name again, which is kind of extreme. But they say that it's done to, quote, liberate the spirit from its body and to help mourners forget the deceased, end quote, which I find kind of interesting. And then, so funerary cannibalism is done as a sign of respect towards the deceased since they view burial as a profane act. So they hate the idea of placing their loved ones in the ground because it's dirty and polluting and they don't want them to, quote, rot in the ground alone, end quote. And it's also believed among the Wari that endless remembering leads to endless sorrow. And so by participating in this custom, they can help kind of dispel the grief in those who are mourning. And I think that's kind of cool. And that's kind of all I had for funerary cannibalism. But now let's talk about warfare cannibalism, which is very much a different thing and much more animalistic. And so... With warfare cannibalism, the warrior will go on excursions where the only goal is to kill their enemies. So they basically just go hunt people they don't like. And once they've killed an enemy, the entire group will be, quote, filled with the spirit of the dead, end quote. And then the warrior will cut up their victim and bring pieces back to the village where they will be roasted and consumed. However... Because the killers have the spirit of the deceased, they do not participate in the feast because that's another form of self-cannibalism. Oh. Yeah, so they kind of... Yeah, I don't know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So this form of cannibalism shows a very undisguised expression of hatred and dominance over their enemies. And so the the meat is eaten off the bone and expressions of disdain are worn to convey the subhuman status of the enemy and just to note in funerary cannibalism the eaters do not touch the flesh and they use toothpicks and they eat very slowly and they kind of alternate between crying and eating to show respect but in not in warfare cannibalism seems like in warfare cannibalism they're just eating like a chicken drumstick (laughs) yeah that's what i imagine too Uh, It's also important that it was not the eating of the enemy that was important in warfare cannibalism. It's the killing of the enemy. And often they did not differentiate their enemies from the animals they hunted, except they treated the animals they hunted with more respect than they did their enemies. Interesting. So don't be an enemy to the worry, because they do not like that. How do you become an enemy of the worry? I feel like... A neighboring tribe that they don't have good relationships with. Hmm. I would just move my tribe. Maybe a Christian missionary. Ah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That would make sense. <laughs> <laughs> um. So that's all I have for like cannibalism. But I have a really interesting concept in the Wari's belief system that I want to share with you guys. Um. So the Wari believe that the spirit of their loved ones go to an underwater afterlife where they are then reincarnated into a fish. And when the individual who is now a fish misses their loved ones, they are then manifested into a Picari, which lives on land and is hunted by the Wari. And this Picari kind of looks like a pot-bellied pig. 
And once the Picari is killed, the killer looks into its eyes to identify the spirit, and then it's consumed in what is considered another act of cannibalism. Basically, when the deceased returns as a Picari, their meat feeds their living loved ones again. This is such a roller coaster. There's so much cannibalism, but the third cannibalism is like spiritual. Yeah. Could they just not say, this is a pig, not this is the spirit of my brother. Let me eat him again. No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't remember the whole reason of why a Picari is their chosen kind of animal. But I think that's very interesting. It is really interesting. It's... Yeah. It's so cool hearing about different cultures. Especially ones that are now kind of quote-unquote extinct like yeah you wouldn't see these same customs today no and now there's only eight villages of the wari tribe and they do not practice cannibalism and a lot of the like our generation of that tribe does not know that they used to practice cannibalism because they yeah they have christian burial customs now which is kind of sad because they really did not enjoy the idea of burying their loved ones yeah, it's sad because they didn't, I mean, at least with the the cannibalism of their loved ones, they didn't intend it to be malicious. Like, this was generally just their way of grieving. Like, yeah, it was a more lost respectful villager. to them. Yeah. yeah. They also... Like, to us, obviously, it doesn't seem very respectful, but to them, it was it's a completely different culture, and we have to respect that, but... Hmm. They also don't really know any different. Like, for us, it's... Like, the Christian missionaries, so it's very different from their standards. And so, obviously, they're like, you're wrong! You need to do it this way because cannibalism is bad. And they're probably like, well, this is all we know. This is what we've been doing. I don't understand. Yeah. Yikes. Anyway, that's all I have about the exciting death rituals of the Wari tribe in the Amazon. Let's bring back uh, funerary cannibalism. (laughs) okay (laughs) i'll let you do that it does not sound very appetizing but at least we have a better word fridges now true all right Mm, no (laughs) (laughs) well uh journey i really enjoyed learning about that thank you i've i don't believe i've ever heard about that tribe but wow it's very interesting um yeah so Nicole, did you want to finish off our episode and tell us about Albert Fish? I would. Um, So I didn't realize how gross this guy was in comparison to both your cases, um, since I did not know either of your cases. So I'm going to give another listener's discretion advised because this guy was some messed up. Like, and I'll give multiple discretions um, later on when I kind of talk about it, but just be warned. So his name was Albert Fish, but he was also nicknamed the Werewolf of Wisteria, the Gray Man, the Moon Maniac, the Brooklyn Vampire, and the Boogeyman. So he's got quite a few names. He is an older individual. He was born on May 19th, 1870, um, to Randall and Ellen Fish, and he was born in Washington, D.C., excuse me, and he had three older living siblings. When he was born, though, his father was 75 years old, and his mother was 43 years younger than her husband. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say his mother was 43, and I was still like, that's a huge age difference, but 43 years younger. Yeah. Ew. Ew. Yeah, um, she was 32. Oh Oh my god, was this consensual? Ah, yeah? Mm -hmm. Was his dad rich? Was this like a gold digger situation? No, it was just the 1800s. Like, you never really know what's going on in the 1800s. Oh yeah, this is the 1800s, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Granted, it is later 1800s, but yeah. Um, His family had quite the history with mental illness, um, Fish's brother was living in a mental hospital at one point. He had an uh, uncle that suffered from religious mania, and I guess his mom dealt with regular visual hallucinations. 
So this is setting up very nicely. Something's obviously not right with this guy. In 1875, Fish was sent to St. John's Orphanage in Washington when he was five because his father passed away and I guess his mom just couldn't take care of him. And so while he was at this orphanage, he frequently suffered abuse over time and he actually started to enjoy the pain and the abuse. Um, So he would actually become aroused and like have erections while being beaten and whipped and this often led to um, him being made fun of by the other individuals, which kind of makes sense. And his full name was actually Hamilton Howard Fish. Uh, but while he was in the orphanage, he wanted this switched because he had the nickname of Ham and Eggs. <laughs> and <laughs> he didn't like that, I guess. So the name Albert, he chose, was the name of a deceased sibling of his that he took on yeah so at this point he started to be called albert in 1880 five years after arriving to the orphanage his mother was able to find work with the government and got him out of there they started living together at 12 years old he had a relationship with a local telegraph boy and this is who is said to have like introduced Albert Fish into a lot of the um, weird and perverted practices he later has. And so this included eating feces and drinking urine at 12. Ew! Yeah. No. Um, Fish also began spending his free time at the public baths where he would watch the boys undress. And this was his like weekend outing. In 1890, Fish moved from Washington to New York City and he was apparently a male prostitute for a short period of time. Eight years later, his mom arranged for him to marry a woman who was nine years younger than him. And they were together for like seven years or something like that. And he actually had six children with her. But while he was in New York during his marriage, it was said that he continued to molest young boys. And even though he had kids, he never like did anything with his kids. But he was still molesting younger children while he had young children. Like it was just very not good situation his first run in with the law was in 1903 when he spent time in sing sing prison for embezzlement i love that it's called sing sing but little side note i was watching something last night and it talked about sing sing uh, prison that's where david berkowitz was executed really no way yeah yeah this is where this guy was killed too wow spoiler he died what a small world Right. Gotta love a crime killer. Um, Anyways, while he was in New York, he had male partners while he was also married. So a partner of his took him to a waxworks museum and he saw a bisection of a penis, which he later became fascinated with. And he developed a morbid interest in castration. Um, And so after this interest, developed i didn't realize there would be a lot of um penis discussion today so i apologize for all of the morbid (laughs) uh discussion about that men um after this he had another relationship with a man who was actually intellectually disabled and he tried castrating him while he tied up the guy and so this individual was able to escape but he fled with half a penis And a week later, Fish gave him $10 for his troubles. Um, So so, generous. Yeah. I'm sorry I cut your penis in half. Here's $10. Treat yourself. Don't spend it all in one place. Yeah. I mean, who knows? $10 could have been $100, but still. I would not. This is 18, or I guess 19, like 1905-ish. Okay, $10 is a lot then. He paid them well. Yeah, but I mean, like, I'd rather have a penis, my penis, than $10 if I was a male. But besides the point. That's fair, I guess. (laughs) Um, Around this time, too, he was frequently visiting brothels so he could be whipped and beaten more often um, for pleasure. And in 1917, this was kind of the turning point for his wife. She left him for another man and... At this time, too, I guess Fish had uh, visual and audio hallucinations and his sadomasochism became too much for her. 
and soon after his wife left him, he apparently began eating raw meat, inviting children to join his feasts, and this was particularly when there was a full moon. So this was how he got the nickname the Werewolf of Wisteria. Did he just straight up ask kids, like, hey, come eat some raw meat with me? Or, like, did he lure them? Like, why were these kids willing? I have no idea. Okay. I don't think, I I don't know if they actually went with him, but he definitely was inviting children to eat raw meat with him. That is gross. Okay. Do you think he... Do you think he ever got, like, salmonella or, like, E. coli or something from eating all this raw meat? Or do you think he just managed to stay healthy? Uh, I don't think he was healthy. It must have affected him somehow, because he was not mentally all there. Like, something got up in there, some... Do you think he had that, um, like, tapeworm or whatever from eating raw pig's meat in his brain that makes you crazy? Oh, maybe. I didn't read anything about that, but that could be it. That's where Mad Cow comes from, isn't it? Theory number one. one. We just solved the case. Um, But anyways, so he he wasn't actually committed or charged with a lot of the crimes he um, had committed. That wasn't proper English at all, but whatever. But his crimes first kind of started in 1910. He had his first attack on a child in Delaware. In and around 1919, he stabbed another intellectually disabled boy, and it came out that many of his intended victims were either intellectually disabled or African-American, and his belief was that they wouldn't be missed in comparison to other children, which is kind of sad. In 1924, he tried to lure an eight-year-old Beatrice Keel, but was chased off by her mother. And then some, for some reason, he decided to return and try to sleep in their barn, but the mom found, them, found him and kicked him out. And his first kind of murder spree was in July of 1924. On July 14th, eight-year-old Francis McDonald was reported missing, and his body was found a day later hanging from a tree in some woods by his house. So he was playing on his French Wow. He was playing on his front porch in Staten Island, and his mom remembers seeing an old man walking around a few times in the area um, while her son was playing outside. And she remembers that the man was clenching and unclenching his fists and staring at the boy and his friends playing. So Francis was sexually assaulted, strangled to death with his suspenders, and he had severe lacerations to his abdomen and legs. This was his first victim, He was never charged for this murder. It came out after... So he was only charged for his third murder, and these came out after he was sentenced. Interesting. Yeah. Um, So three years later, his second victim was four-year-old Billy Gaffney. He was playing with his friend Billy Beaton, who both went missing on February 11th of 1927. The friend, Billy Beaton, he was found on the roof of his building, and he said that the boogeyman had taken him when he was questioned. So that's kind of where his nickname of the boogeyman came from. Oh. And so Fish had taken Billy Gaffney onto the trolley where the boy was crying for his mom, and I guess this was quite a scene. And so it raised suspicion, and later it came out that... uh, eyewitness came forward and was like oh yeah i saw fish on the train with this guy or the trolley with this guy but his body was actually never found and his mother confronted fish in prison after he had been arrested for his third crime that i'll get into um and she asked him what he did to billy and he told her that he brought him to the local dumps where there was an abandoned house nearby At the house, he bound, gagged, and stripped Billy of his clothing before burning his clothes and throwing shoes into the nearby dump. Fish then left the boy tied up overnight. He left the abandoned house at 2 a.m. to catch the trolley back home and to walk the remaining space, like, distance from the station. And then he returned the next day with his tools. So I will give another listener discretion before this, um... We do go into a bit of detail with this. 
So he proceeded to whip Billy with a cat of nine tails, which is basically a whip with nine separate strands on it um, that are all connected to one handle. And typically they'll be like tied at the end. Um, Unfortunately, Billy's mouth was cut from ear to ear. His nose and ears were cut off. And even after this, Fish continued to gouge out his eyes, puncture his stomach with a knife and continued to drink the blood from his stomach. His, yeah, his body was cut into little pieces, was dismembered, he was decapitated, and fish kept certain pieces to later eat, and the remaining pieces were disposed in various potato sacks that were filled with stones and dropped into a nearby river. And it is important to note, though, that fish is said to have been a pathological liar, so he could have just been setting, saying all of this to, like, I don't know, call like, bring attention to him. I don't know how his mind works. But regardless, pardon my French, but what the fuck? Like, regardless of if it was true or not, you don't really come up with that. No, that's messed up. And in his confession to Mrs. Gaffney, Fish said the following about how he ate her son. Um, So this is a direct quote, skip past if you don't want to hear it. But he said, quote, I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body I liked best. His monkey and peewees had a nice little fat behind to roast in the oven and eat. I made a stew of his ears, nose, pieces of his face and belly. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt and pepper. It was good. Then I split the cheeks of his behind open, cut off his monkey and peewees and washed them first. I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and put them in the oven. Then I picked four onions, and when the meat had roasted about a quarter of an hour, I poured about a pint of water over it for gravy and put in the onions. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown, cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as his sweet, fat little behind did. I ate every bit of the meat in about four days. His little monkey was as sweet as a nut, but his peewees I could not chew. Threw them in the toilet. End quote. That's disgusting. And I hate the words he uses. And I hate how much detail he went into. It was like he was just cooking a beef roast. And he's saying this to the victim's mother, too. I couldn't imagine being her and having someone tell you in that much detail what they did to your son right oh my god Ugh. i just don't understand the thought process because even if this didn't happen which it may have because billy was never found like why would you create such an elaborate story if you are a pathological liar to tell this woman in this detail like why would you choose this cannibalism ew you know No, thank you. Yeah. And so his third victim was 10-year-old Grace Budd, and this was who he was arrested for murdering. This was in 1928. In May of that year, Grace's brother Edward, he had put an ad in the paper saying that he was looking for work, that he was an 18-year-old male, um, fit, ready to do, like, country work, whatever. So Fish responded to the ad. He went to visit the family in Manhattan under the pretense of hiring Edward, But he lied and used a fake name, so he said he was Frank Howard, and that he was a farmer from Farmingdale, which is actually a real place. I had to check it, because I was like, there's no way you're a farmer from Farmingdale, but it is a real place. (laughs) That's an amazing place to be a farmer. Yeah. So he told Edward that he would hire him on his second visit to the house. On this visit, though, he somehow managed to convince the parents to let Edward's younger sister, Grace go to a birthday party with fish which was being hosted at fish's sister's house um and mind you he was almost 60 at this point and she was 10 yeah Uh, i was gonna say why did the parents let her go with an old man to a birthday party only being met twice too like this was the second time he met the family but anyways he had no intention of bringing to her to a party unfortunately she was brought oops i hit my mic 
She was brought to an empty house, and while she was picking flowers in the yard, Fish was inside um, uh, the abandoned house undressing because he didn't want to get any blood on his clothes. So what happened was he hid in a closet and called for Grace from outside to come in. And so when Grace was coming in, he jumped out of the closet and attacked and strangled her to death. And it's said that he proceeded to cut her into small pieces to easily carry her home and later eat her. Six years after this, this still blows my mind, in November of 1934, he wrote a letter to Grace's mom detailing what he had done. So similar to like the explanation he gave um, the other victim's mother in person, he gave a detailed letter before he was even arrested about what he did i'm gonna post the letter because it is quite detailed and i don't want to read two letters on this i will post it on our website if you do want to read it oh my goodness that was my mic um but anyways on the envelope of that letter was the emblem which was nypcba and this stood for the new york private chauffeurs benevolent association and so i guess during the investigation because obviously There was now an investigation happening. Grace's mom and dad reported her missing, all of this. Uh, The janitor of this company told detectives that he had taken some of the business's stationary home to use, but he actually later forgot it at a rooming house that he was staying at. And it was this same rooming house that Fish stayed at after the janitor. So he checked out only a few days before the letter was sent, Fish did. And while the detectives were at the rooming house, they were told that Fish was expecting a check from his son. And so the landlady was holding it for him. So the investigator hung around, asked him to go to the station for some questioning. Fish first agreed, but then pulled a razor blade out. I guess he just carried a razor blade and tried to attack the investigator, but he was able to disarm Fish quite quickly. During the questioning... Fish told detectives that his initial plan was to kill Grace Bud's brother, Edward, and not her. He also made no attempt, though, to deny that he killed her during this time. But he also never said, I explicitly killed her. Like, you know what I mean? But anyways, he was charged with premeditated murder of Grace Bud. And before the start of his trial, though, he actually pled the insanity defense, saying that God told him to kill the children. So... (laughs) He went to a psychiatric hospital to do a couple evals, had some observations done. And after being examined by several psychiatrists, they testified that Fish had a numerous amount of sexual fetishes. Excuse me. Some included sadism, exhibitionism, where he like would show himself to people, masochism, peakerism, which is like an interest in like poking and like pin and pain i guess i don't know pedophilia and many others and so with this peakerism they actually had an x-ray of his pelvis area and it showed 30 needles like 30 or so needles embedded into his body so it was like in his skin just hanging out like he just put needles in his pelvis and then carried on with his life Yeah, he had almost 30 in there. I'll put a picture in our source images. Yeah, the x-ray was interesting. Yeah, I can't wait to see that. Yeah. Yeah. And so one psychiatric... Wow. One psychiatrist, yes, found him insane. But while he knew that, like, Fish was doing... What? While Fish knew what he was doing was wrong, his thoughts were overpowered by religion, sin, and atonement, apparently. So Fish said that the killing of the children was a way for him to atone his sins. Because that makes sense. No, it does not. (laughs) And while the jury did believe he was insane, they still thought he should be executed. So they found him sane, guilty of murder, and sentenced him to death. That's a good way to go about that. Yeah, I don't think that's the proper way, but no, the the way that was needed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
So during his execution on January 16th of 1936, it's said that he reportedly put the electrodes in place on his body, like for the executioner. And apparently his last words were, I don't even know why I'm here. Sir, you know why you're there. Um, (laughs) Dying in the electric chair was apparently the supreme thrill for Fish, one he has never tried before and he was excited And his final statement was never read to the press um, because his lawyer said, quote, it was the most filthy string of obscenities that I've ever read, end quote. So he had like his last statement or whatever, but only his lawyer had read it. He didn't make it public to anyone because of how, how awful it was. My God. Right? And so in addition to these three homicides, he'd confessed, he had confessed to stabbing at least two other people. And used to say that he had children in every state, but it was never mentioned if this was, like, related to molestation, cannibalism, or, like, something else entirely. But one of the detectives that worked the case thought that he was the Brooklyn vampire who was sexually assaulting and preying on children at the time. Um, But, yeah, sorry to end on that note, but he was kind of very not nice yeah so that's albert fish he's dead thankfully good old ham and eggs yeah i will not look at ham and eggs the same anymore anyway that nickname does make me laugh though like why (laughs) ham and eggs well i guess because his name was hamilton they just (laughs) figured that would be the most fitting name i hope i meet someone named hamilton so i can call them ham and eggs uh funny enough my stepmom's family's last name is hamilton (gasps) you'll have to call them the ham and eggers (laughs) (laughs) thankfully they don't eat people i'll say that so that's good that's That's relieving yeah well not that i know of i don't think they do (laughs) i'll let you know if they do (laughs) thank you please let the police know before you let us know of course but yes that is albert fish um yeah wow well thank you both for those um very interesting stories um i think both were interesting for different reasons one for cultural relevance and one is just (laughs) purely disturbing um but on that note we really hope you enjoyed this episode that we did a little differently i know we didn't talk about a forensic science this week uh, but we're going to pick that up again next week uh, when we talk about Albert DeSalvo and the science of forensic hypnosis. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Forensic hypnosis is another thing that's like really iffy and not really allowed to be used anymore, but it does have a pretty interesting history. Um, it still is used in a spot in the States, is it not? We'll yeah, fact wasn't... check for next week but yeah i thought there was a current event in one of our classes that said they like just reinstated the forensic hypnosis yeah i think it's texas oh wow if i haven't heard about that so can we have the information yes (laughs) (laughs) wow um i didn't find a joke this week i forgot i have one journey can you tell us your joke then (laughs) is it a cannibal joke it's not it's doesn't relate to forensics at all, but I found it really funny. Bryce told it to me last night. Um, oh, why gosh. do people call Elon Musk Elon? Oh, oh, it's a plan. Why? Why? Because that's his name. Oh Stop! my god. <laughs> <laughs> God. Yeah, that was my reaction too. I was like, no. I have to tell you guys. No, I don't like that. <laughs> I kind of loved it. Wow, thanks for that. You're welcome. What is what a dumb and simple but great joke, right? It's so dumb. It's funny. Um, All right, um, I have a, I have a, another joke. Okay. Okay. Um, what do cannibals eat to freshen their breath? Oh, I don't know. Oh, you're kind of Mentos. Oh men- no! Men- <laughs> no Mentos. 
Oh, oh no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, if you enjoyed this episode, um, you can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, all at What the Forensics. Or Twitter is uh, at WTForensicsPC. Our website is whatthefrensics.ca, or you can contact us at whattheforensics at gmail.com. We really love to hear from you guys and hear any suggestions you may have or any further discussions you have about previous episodes. Um, so yeah, if you want to reach out and let us know any suggestions, we would greatly appreciate that. So with that being said, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week.